Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert, guardian of the dreams of men, protector against wicked nightmares, lord of the dream dome, and friend of children everywhere, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and cheap copy of her vanished mother, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Playing House, issue 12 from the Sandman comic book series. Playing House was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by guest penciler Chris Bacciallo and inker Malcolm Jones III. Xylenol did the colors, John Costanza lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Art Young. Covers by Dave McKean. I am coming, though the way may be arduous and strange. Nothing will stop me. Time to wake up. Right, Elisa, here we are, um, issue 12 of the Sandman series in the midst of uh, volume two, The Doll's House. And uh, what do you think of this one? This is, I think, the dreamiest of the issues mm-hmm. uh, so far, in the sense that it has more of a feel of a dream and the puzzling illogic of dreams. It's mm-hmm. also really grounded in emotion. Um, and this this chapter is very much anchored in the experiences of Hippolyta Hall, a woman trapped in the limbo of a marriage that only exists as an illusion and in a never-ending pregnancy. Oh, my God. I'll let you know from my experience both times, both pregnancies felt like they were never going to end. You get to the 36th week and you're like, oh, my God, this is taking the rest of my life. I cannot imagine what she's been pregnant for like two years now. That's nuts. It's it, yeah no and it's it's amazing that a man wrote this because there is something mm-hmm. about a pregnancy that especially towards the end it feels you have entered the an endless endless yes. pregnancy endless pregnancy yes I can definitely see how that feels um you know I have to say I don't know that this is my favorite issue because um, if you're talking about quality of story my God there's a lot of hot competition in this series but I think this may be the one that like personally delighted me the most, you know? Um, And I think that if you talk about favorite issue for this series, for me, there's like favorite in which way, you know, there's so many different ways in which a particular issue might be my favorite so far. I loved reading this. I delighted in the panels. I delighted in the art. I delighted in fucking Morpheus who was adorable. And I mean, when Morpheus, the dark, broody, Byronic lord of dreams, you know, is is adorable. Um, that's just so much fun. <laughs> All right, let's get into our summary. We begin playing house with Lyda Hall who brushes her hair and tries to remember life before the Dream Dome, a superhero-style fortress lined with innumerable video screens and alarms. Lyda, heavily pregnant, used to do costumed superhero stuff with her husband Hector when they attended UCLA. But that was long ago before Hector died and was inducted by Brute and Glob as the new Sandman, protector of dreams. But as Morpheus navigates his way through the maze his renegade subjects have constructed to keep him out, Brood and Glob get wise and realize that the jig is up. While Morpheus storms the dream dome inside Jed's head, Jed endures another day of abuse at the hands of the cruel adults who are supposed to be taking care of him. Despite their abuse, the evil Barnaby and Clarice are keeping Jed safe, which presumably means alive, 
for reasons they do not understand any more than Lyda understands why her mind shies away from asking the difficult questions about her life. Meanwhile, in the waking world, Jed's sister Rose drives through Georgia in search of him. When her rental car breaks down, she and her protector, Gilbert, walk to the nearest motel, which is all booked up because of a serial convention. Since most of the attendees aren't coming until the next morning, the front desk clerk agrees to break the rules and rent Rose and Gilbert two rooms. Elsewhere in Georgia, the Corinthian meets two would-be thugs in an alley, and we learn that whatever he's hiding behind his shades has teeth. Back in Jed's mind, Morpheus, the true Sandman, confronts Hector, who believes he is the Sandman in a superhero battle that ends when Hector succeeds in doing the impossible, making Morpheus laugh. Still, Morpheus puts an end to Hector's dream life, sending Hector to his elder sister's care. Lyta, furious and grieving, tries to attack Morpheus. He tells her to build a new life for herself and to guard the life she carries. The child you have carried so long in dreams, he adds, almost as an afterthought. That child is mine. Take good care of it. One day, I will come for it. Out in the cold rain, Jed, freed from his prison, hitches a ride and is picked up by everyone's scariest nightmare, the Corinthian. My God, this is going to be so much fun to talk about. But let's go ahead and start with Dave McKean's like wicked creepy. And I do not mean that as an insult uh, cover art. <laughs> it's it's the Boston wicked. I get it. It's wicked. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's this this sort of prehistoric looking animal skull uh, on mm-hmm. top of figure who's all in white. And I'm taking that as possibly a reference to Morpheus in his helm, but maybe Mm -hmm. also a symbol that in this sense, Morpheus is a white hat. He is really at his Mm -hmm. most heroic, I think, in this issue. um, Yeah. Well, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for him. Um, Right, exactly. On the sliding scale of Morpheus, sure. (laughs) So yeah, so he's he is sort of being a white hat, mm-hmm. but this is just a, a really disturbing cover. We also have that eye that is, you know, a, just a pincushion of an eye, and it's Ugh. looking out at some tear in in is it glass? Is it bloody fragments of something? Is is it, it the Corinthian as it's about to swallow the eye? I don't know. <laughs> Ooh, oh, that's a good association. Mm-hmm. Don't you widen your eyes at me. That's scary now. <laughs> <laughs> no, the whole eyeball thing is just like, I'm, I don't typically have like an eyeball thing, but I think that this, uh, this series might give it to me. It might make me have one because the idea that the Corinthian can bite off like fingers with his eyes, you know, and that he eats eyes. It's just, it's also weird. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, yeah, the, the cover is so incredibly like creepy and resonant. And what I really love about the McKean covers is that they're not like, they don't seem to be literal translations. We look at this, this whitened skull 
that looks, you know, yeah, it looks like a prehistoric animal, but it also has a demonic, has these fangs, it has this demonic sense to it, you know? And we have the, of course, you know, demon con going on at this uh, this place in, in Georgia. Um, the, the eye with the pin cushions, like with the pins coming out of it, um, is so, so weird. Because like, what's the most vulnerable part? Right. You know, if you, what they tell you as a young woman is if you ever get attacked in an alley, which apparently don't ever go into an alley in the Sandman universe because it's always bad news. Um, that the first thing you go for are the eyes. Like the eyes are like the most vulnerable part of us as humans. You know, you go for somebody in the eyes, you're going to debilitate them, you know? Um, and here to have the eye that's so vulnerable to be wide open with all of these pins that do not appear to be in the eye yet, but aimed at it. Mm. Like we know where this is ending up, you know, um, it's all so incredibly evocative. And, and the thing about the, the McKean covers that I really enjoy is that they are a read in and of themselves, right? Some things you glance at them, you're like, I see what that is, and you move on. The McKean covers, you can spend a very, very long time looking at them, thinking about them, processing what they mean. It, yeah, it's I've been watching The Chair on Netflix and Me too. Oh hi. Well, I love it. And <laughs> but part of it made me realize, oh, when is the last time I've sit I, I I sit. I when's the last when's the last time I spoke English? When's the last time I I was you know decon you know taking a poem apart and really thinking about it? Mm-hmm. And these covers are like poems. And one of the details yeah. that I noticed this time is there is a small ribbon, like a rainbow ribbon that almost looks like an umbilical cord, um, mm-hmm. that is is running around the midsection. And I, it seems to me that might be some aspect of delirium, of illusion. And I think the fact that it looks like an umbilical cord is probably no coincidence. I imagine it's not. Um, and also like the white figure in it with the skull head. Um, I saw that as a doll's body, mm. you know, as like the body of the doll because we had the head of the doll. <laughs> It's so creepy. We have the head of the doll at various other spaces, you know. Um, so yeah, it the whole thing is is so interesting. And for anybody who um, you know who is interested in doing that kind of visual deep read, um, if you don't have the Dave McKean covers, um, I would recommend. There's a book on Amazon. I bought it. Um, it's amazing to to flip through and take a look at. Look them up on the internet. Find the covers. It is well worth taking the time to take a look at what he's put together here. Um, And especially because when you think about comic book covers, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know, way more about this than I ever will. But when I look at comic book covers, you know, usually they really represent, you know, the kind of things that you see inside. We've got the hero, we've got the, you know, like an action moment from this story. Um, And the Dave McKean covers seem so like so different like such a different direction to go into um and was sandman one of the first comic books that did that kind of like you know wildly interpretive poetic cover work i believe so and i Mm -hmm. you know i am not a person who 
knows or seems to retain like yes this was the first well there was one precedent in 1936 but no one knew about it and you know I'm just not that person Mm -hmm. I do know that Curtis King, who was the cover uh, editor, would come around and he'd say, okay, let's talk about what the covers are. And he'd put them up to see how different covers would look together on the news racks. Mm -hmm. And then he'd come to the Sandman covers and he'd say, well, you guys must know what you're doing because I don't even know what to say about this. You know, because it would be uh, other other covers had a more, uh, I mean, conventional look Mm -hmm. in the sense that you know it was a hellblazer cover you had john constantine on the cover if he was battling Mm -hmm. satan there was satan on the cover and Mm -hmm. and these were beautiful these were done by amazing artists but i don't remember the other covers being um you know quite so abstract expressionist uh, collage Mm -hmm. all of the the many things. Although one of Curtis's jobs was to spot nipples as they strayed in. And he was convinced, I think, that Dave McKean was trying to slip nipples into the collage in ways that Curtis wouldn't catch and then would get him in trouble. <laughs> that alone, I kind of want to write a TV series that's just behind the scenes in the <laughs> comics industry in the 90s, because that sounds fascinating. Um, so here we have a, um, a guest uh, penciler, right? I believe mm-hmm. um, in Chris Bacciallo. Um So, can you talk a little bit about do do guests come in and 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 pinch hit at times? Is that a common thing? Yeah, it's pretty mm-hmm. standard that on a long running series, in order to let the regular monthly penciler, you know, breathe, live, catch up, mm-hmm. uh, you will you will do you'll have a guest penciler. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because it is incredibly grueling to do this mm-hmm. kind of drawing. It's, I think about, you know, in terms of artistic careers that just knock the kishkas out of you, it's probably yeah. like chorus line dancer and comic book <laughs> penciler. These are just very work intensive jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I when I came on, Chris Bacciallo was the regular artist on a different series. He was the artist on Shade, the Changing Man, written by mm-hmm. the incredible Peter Milligan. Um, also, by the way, a series from the 90s, so worth uh, checking out. It's just trippy and very different from The Sandman, but mm-hmm. um, an amazing read. So Chris, I I just had an instant affinity for Chris's way of working and there is Mm -hmm. something about his style that I just it really resonated with me I think that some of the things which I came to love you can really see in this issue although he is still fitting himself in with Mike Mm -hmm. Dringenberg and um and and Malcolm Jones III's style I mean Malcolm Jones Mm -hmm. III was still inking him I think that if you take a look at at Shade you'll see his emerging style that became more recognizable and then he went on to do all kinds of really amazing work he's he's a you know he's a powerhouse in in comics art mm-hmm. um so one of the things you know when you read something forget you know from the 90s but i had written the sandman king of dreams book i think mm-hmm. around 2000 I can't remember already. 2005? It's all a blur, people. Um, and and so looking back, I, I know I really resonated with um, that scene where Lyta is, you know, that, that final image. And I had 
written something about that in the book and sort of um, called it out because I it, the book was sort of a, an overview, so I couldn't comment on every issue, and that was mm-hmm. one of the images. Um, I've written something about it, but I, I'm going to save this actually for when we're doing our favorite parts. But I okay, I just I love that. I think that there is something about the way Chris draws women that Mm -hmm. is part of the intense emotional connection we feel to Lyda. Yeah, Lyda was really beautifully drawn, you know, and I think one of my favorite moments is, of course, where she's saying, I'm so happy. I'm so very happy and just crying, you know, um, I love the the panel where she is looking at herself in the mirror and seeing all these different phases in her life. Um, it's just really, really beautifully done. It it really is. And I, I you know, I mean, I think that one of the great joys for me of doing this podcast with you before we go on to the Netflix series is to really revisit the art and the artists. And so I'm hoping that people will get to see this and that, you know, if you're just go check out Shade the Changing Man too and see, I mean, just see how his art style develops. And he he just, Mm -hmm. I, I, he also learns how to not learns how this is the okay i'm just gonna blah, 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 blah. in the old days <laughs> before we had digital effects for everything uh-huh. overlays uh were sort of on vellum and so i would get these gorgeous penciled pages from chris and then you'd get a vellum with part of it painted and sometimes another vellum over that and that would create these trippy um you know uh special effects painterly Mm -hmm. images and um i guess it's i don't think anything is done like that anymore and Mm -hmm. so when you look at shade and you look at chris's work on that you're gonna see a technique that just isn't really done and it's beautiful it's different than what you get with digital yeah, you know, it is it is really neat. We were talking about, uh, you know, in one of the earlier episodes about typewriters, you know, and about like the, the mechanical analog way we used to do things. Of course, now everything is done, you know, through digital means, which I think opens up a lot of new spaces and new things to explore. But we do lose some of that. And especially if you're talking to like, I, I mean, people reading the comics didn't really get that. But like you and your experience working with it, there's a tactile element to it. There's an extra dimension I think that comes when you're when you're dealing with art that is made, um, you know, with actual materials. So yeah, it's 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 not necessarily better or worse, but I think that it it is different, you know. And I I think that there's a simplicity to it. I was just thinking recently about you know the save the cat method of plotting with index cards, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean on the one hand I'm so sloppy that I always lose control of my index mm-hmm. cards, which turn into like a really bad tarot reading. But I'm even worse at something like Scrivener, where I I feel I know people find it so freeing. I need to pace and touch and scribble and doodle. Mm -hmm. And there's something about maybe it's because I came to computers later, but I find the program daunting. So 
Oh, yeah. No, Scrivener was helpful to me when I was writing a novel. I had a novel that I was really struggling with, and I always have to write in a linear order. So I write a scene, I write the next scene, I write the next scene, I write the next scene. Oh, I've never written out of order except on that one book that I couldn't finish. And that was the only time that Scrivener was really valuable for me. Um, But other than that, for me, it gets too complicated. And one of the problems I think that happens in, in a digital arena for creators is that you have so many more tools available to you. And sometimes the edited piece, you know, the piece that has limitations, like limitations can really spawn creativity. And in a digital environment, sometimes those limitations are lifted to a point that it's it's like a swaddled, I mean, for me, I could I feel like it's like a swaddled baby, right? Babies that are, when they're very young and their limbs are all flying all over the place and they don't know, like you swaddle them and that comforts them because it limits that movement and they can just breathe, right? And I think that there is something to the way in which digital opportunities open up such a wide breadth of tools that sometimes it feels like you have to use them you know, um, and and you really don't, you know, and you can work in whatever environment you want. But like, I find that a very limited, simple Word document or Google Doc document is the only way that I can write. You know, I have to have it simple. I have to have all of the like bells and whistles and everything that can wait for later. Right now, I've just got to focus on what it is I'm trying to do. So, um, so I imagine with art that there may be something to that too. That, you know, I mean, I have, okay, let me just say before I, I mention this that I have absolutely no artistic ability whatsoever. But I got a, you know, I got an iPad and I got a little pencil with it and I want to try it out. So I bought this program called Procreate, which basically allows you to do like amazing. And I see what artists do with this, like just this simple little iPad program. It's amazing. You know, Um, I can't do pencil sketches. I don't know what I was thinking when I bought it. It was fun to play around with, but I have absolutely no artistic talent. But the thing is is that they're like this program, I look at it and I'm like, it doesn't look like there are any limitations. You can pick any format, any medium, any, you know, make papers and, and all this kind of stuff, all these textures, everything that you can do. And sometimes I think a good a good solid edit. I have never worked on anything that wasn't improved by cutting 10%. You know, um, and so I think that there may be something to that in just in creative work in general is having those limitations. Um, but getting back to Sandman, um, it, uh, one of the things that um, that I noticed right away, and of course, you know me, I love an identity story. I love the fact that Dream has 18 names, you know, um, and, and all these ways in which people, you know, call him. Um, but the moment where I can't remember which it was, if it was Brute or Glob, they basically are kind of like one being to me. Um, one of them says more, like he's about to say Morpheus, and the other one is like, shut up, scab brain. His name could give him immediate entry here. And that saying the name, you know, it makes me think of that, you know, middle school, look in the mirror, Bloody Mary three times kind of power, um, you know, but but that if you say Morpheus's name, it will pull him in, you know, he will find you. And these two are so desperately trying to evade him at that point. Um, and so, you know, you know me, I always love an identity story. I love names. I love the power of names. I thought that that was just kind of like a cool little detail. It is. I think that that idea that naming things um, can invoke them, that can destroy, can take away their power. There's a lot of that in Jewish traditions. For example, in the Ashkenazic Mm -hmm. Jewish tradition, Mm -hmm. you never name 
a uh, a baby after a living relative and the idea mm-hmm. is that that will take away a little of their life force oh gosh that's interesting well i mean you think about harry potter right nobody would say voldemort he who, sh- who won't be named or shouldn't be named or whatever he or should not be named um you know and and um rumpelstiltskin right rumpelstiltskin that classic yes. once she had his name she had the power um so i find it really interesting how we kind of touch on that and of course later on in the series no big spoilers but there's going to be a moment in which the utterance of of dream's name will also have a consequence um so yeah i i just find that really interesting i like that it's such a it's a momentary little touch on a really really funny page um but i enjoyed it a lot i, I thought it was a very kind of cool little world building, you know, thing. Yeah. And it builds Morpheus up in terms of his power and his. his, I'm sorry. Apparently, Siri thought (laughs) (laughs) I said something that sounded like Siri uh, and was not. And so she was listening to that whole thing and it actually transcribed everything I'd said and then was like, I cannot understand what you're talking about. Well, right, this, so is, sorry. Anyway. this is the power of names. You have clearly... This is the power of names. <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, now because it ties in, I'm going to... Jack, go ahead and leave that part in. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, now that we're talking about Root and Glob, mm-hmm. I just want to say... I love these two. I love the way that they play stupid so that Hector can feel smart and it makes it easier to control him. I love that they knew that their plan was doomed, but they did it anyway. And they're coming up with all of these things like, I got it. We get out of the dreaming while he's busy with the bozo cut open Barnaby and Clarice scoop out their insides and hide inside the skins. And then the other one's like, yeah, he's going to find us. And he's like, yeah, he's going to find us. You know? <laughs> I, I love it because it's, you know, Fritz, I think it was Fritz Lang wrote Farford mm-hmm. and the Grey Mouser. And that may be mm-hmm. one of the original. There's there's like the big hulking, not as bright mm-hmm. one. And then yeah. there's like the little sharp, quick one. It's the of mice and men dynamic. Pinky it's, in the brain. <laughs> it, yeah. And I, I think mm-hmm. that this is one of those tropes. You know, some people, they like their uh, secret babies. Some people, they like their, I don't know, cowboy nurses. Me, I love like a, 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 a big hulking, you know, guy and the little sharp, smart guy. I, you know, it, it just gets me every time. But I like that they're like neither one of them is particularly stupid. You know, they both know exactly what they're doing. And one of the things that I absolutely love is Morpheus, furious chasing them down really really pissed off but like good job boys at the same time right you know i love that whole thing it's just so incredibly incredibly cute i love too that they were um you know when they're talking about garrett sanford who i'm gonna talk about a little bit in lucian's library um he's like the first mortal we used garrett sanford he cracked up killed himself couldn't take the strain we thought okay next time we get someone who's dead to start with like i i love them so much i cannot even well, there's actually, and I hadn't written this down, but now that you're mm-hmm. saying it, I'm remembering, one of the faces we see on those many video screens is mm-hmm. uh, like a jack-o'-lantern. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm assuming that that is a character we have yet to meet. And yeah. he is also just one of those minor characters from the Dreaming who just fills me with all kinds of joy and pleasure. 
It's just, they're so delightful. I absolutely love them. So that was one of the things, like there were a couple of things that delighted me um, in this issue. Brute and Glob, definitely, definitely one of them. But Morpheus on a Mission was amazing. I love, I am coming, though the way may be arduous and strange. Nothing will stop me. He has this determination to find them, set everything right. But my favorite thing, though, I got to say, because I am a, a woman, like, I, I, you know, I think whether or not I'm a workaholic is up for debate. But there is like what a workaholic. Like, I, I love people who love their work. I love people who are good at their work. I love people who are committed to their work and who do a good job, even when it doesn't really matter. They just do a good job because it's it's like part of who they are, you know? And so here we have, um, you know, Morpheus tearing a hole through the universe so he can tear a hole through these dudes, right? <laughs> he is pissed. And yet we have this moment of admiration, you know, and he he looks at the work, at the quality of the work that they did. Good job, guys, in building this house. I'm going to tear it down. My admiration does not lessen my anger. I love that. It's parental. You know, as you're mm -hmm. saying this, I'm thinking how when my kids would, you know, rip apart the living room in order to create a fort, I'd be, you know, okay, first mm -hmm. of all, nice architecture and design. Exactly. And second of all, <laughs> this had just got to go back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's really great. And so the the appreciation for a job well done is something that just speaks specifically like there's one there's a phrase that I use a lot in in, you know, when I analyze uh, stories, and I say like something that was made specifically to delight me. And that is one of those things made specifically to delight me. Um, and then okay, can we talk about Morpheus laughing? Because oh, my God. <laughs> I love that moment. It's there is something about a character who is under a lot of self constraint mm -hmm. cracking that is an especial delight. I was just reading some long ago interview with Isaac Asimov talking about Star Trek conventions. And mm -hmm. he says, you know, it's not all teenage girls yelling with hormones. Except when Leonard Nimoy walks by and, and then, you know, you some teenage girl hormones. And I think, you know, the reason I loved Mr. Spock were those moments when his emotions would break through. Mm -hmm. In romance, I don't know if this is my term or a term I've heard, but it's it's like banked fires. And you know mm -hmm. that a guy who has got deeply banked fires the idea is that he is going to burn hotter for you. His, you know, when he finally lets loose and laughs, it's it's going to mm -hmm. be so much sweeter, so much more meaningful. And I think that's that's probably why a lot of romance writers and readers are going to end up loving Sandman. I think so, definitely. I mean, he is, he's so fun. He's so complicated. Um, the Okay, when he calls Hector little ghost, mm. oh, little ghost, and he just, that's all he refers to him as, little ghost. Um, and be off with you, little ghost. It is unseemly for dead people to be in the in the world of the living. Um, all of that is also super, super adorable. So everything in here, like Morpheus in this issue, was basically ready to steal my heart and walk away with it. And then this bullshit with Lyda. The baby belongs to me. Like, okay, first of all... I I hope that we're going to see that play out. 
um, at some point. I don't spoil. I'm just saying that I hope that we're going to see that story play out because when Lyta says, over my dead body, you spooky bastard. Um, first of all, now I kind of wish that we'd name the podcast, you spooky bastard. But um, but when Lyta <laughs> says that, like I want to see that conflict play out. I want to see Lyta go toe to toe with Morpheus over her kid. Okay, so now I think I am going to have to... Can I can I read the little squib, if that's the right word, for what I, yes. I wrote from uh, mm-hmm. the Sandman King of Dreams book? So I wrote that depicting Lida with her legs spread wide, Chris captures something of the awkward power of pregnancy. By repeating this pose in the last panel, we are also shown a deeper level of meaning. This is a birth of something dark and powerful. This is the birth of a hatred so profound that it will set in motion. And I'm not going to finish the sentence I wrote in the book because it's too spoilery. (laughs) And I will say instead forces that Morpheus will not be able to laugh off. Uh, There's also powerful irony at work because Mm -hmm. on some level, Morpheus must intuit that what he's doing here is self-destructive. Oh, my God. I love the promise of all of that. I am so in for all of that. I think that's amazing. Um, I, you know, I just have to say, like, my experience of Morpheus, with the exception of that moment, although I think if that moment, if that moment plays out narratively, um, then I think I'm going to be I'm going to appreciate it. But in the moment, it pissed me off. I was like, who the hell do you think you are? You know, um, and also like, you know, getting between a mother and her kid. Uh, you know, I know Morpheus is really powerful, but that's not a place he wants to be. <laughs> it it reminds me um, a little bit of the story of Samuel. So mm-hmm. in the Bible, Samuel's mother, Hannah, I think it was, uh, wasn't able to have a child and she goes into the high priest's house and she's she's in the temple and she's crying and wailing and he thinks she's drunk and you know and, and she responds she's not drunk she's in grief because she can't have a baby and he says okay go mm-hmm. you're gonna have a baby but when the child is weaned he belongs to me um. and so she you know doesn't wean him until she absolutely has to and then he you know, is raised up in the high priest's house and he mm-hmm. becomes um he he becomes Samuel the prophet. This is not this is not this is just what it resonated for me with back in the early right. days. This mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. what happens. Um yeah. I I but I thought about what it means to owe your child to someone in that way. And that's what it so I don't, I, and again, that is not some, you know, I don't think Neil was trying to retell the Old Testament, but right. uh, but I do think there is some resonance in there of the idea that maybe it's not just Morpheus's decision. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not the high priest that when those forces come into play, that mm-hmm. child is touched by something special that's not under his control. And I think how in fairy tales, well, first of all, I'm going to go into the Bible for a second because it's yeah. an mm-hmm. interesting thing that um, every important birth 
tends to be a birth that doesn't just happen easily. So you mm. often have a, a, a queen who really wants a child and can't have a child, and she pricks her finger and the blood drops on the snow. Or mm. you have people, you know, you have all these sort of incredible births, and then you see it in fairy tales with mm -hmm. um, Rapunzel. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I think anytime a pregnancy takes too long in, in myth and, and legend, mm -hmm. there is already something about that baby that is going to be other, going to be touched by something yeah. special. Well, I mean, that's really interesting because as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the the phrase, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's, you know, like maybe stories, stories repeat themselves all the times, but also they rhyme. Like also there are certain themes and certain notes and harmonies that will find their way into these stories as we tell them and retell them and retell them because those are things that we need to understand and that we need to be able to process. Um, and I find that really, really interesting. And now I'm just tempted to go look up what does pregnancy mean in dreams, right? When you're pregnant mm. in a dream, you know? I know that when I've, I've been in the process of writing a book, I have often compared it to pregnancy because it is this whole gestational thing and then the last part is the where you push and just get it done you know yeah except that i i think that like with my book pregnancies you know you finish mm -hmm. it and it you know it's done but i think yeah. that these weird these weird resonant pregnancies in myth, maybe they're more like sourdough, where you, mm -hmm. you know, you use some of the sourdough, but there's there's always a little of that sourdough. It's is always going to grow. You, yeah. You're always pulling a little bit out of the uh, mother load of sourdough. That's so interesting. I love, I, and that's one of the things that I really love about Sandman is that there are all of these resonances, you know, that like, even in the moment as you're reading it, you're like, you know, if you look at it from this angle, there's this. And if I look at it from this angle, there's this. And if I look at it from this angle, there's this. And then there's something about all those facets kind of spinning through the story. Like that is a meaning making machine. You know, that's what stories do. You know, the universe runs on meaning and stories are the machine that make it, you know. Stories, um, stories and sourdough. Stories <laughs> and sourdough. Now I kind of want to bake. But anyway, before I do that, yes. let's talk about the Corinthian. Um, you know, what's funny is that all of the scenes so far with the Corinthian, which I didn't realize until we were here, have been seen from his point of view. Right. We always look at the people that he's interacting with. We see his hands, you know, on the desk at the hotel room. We see his victims from his point of view, from what he sees, you know. Um, so we haven't really looked at him. We haven't known about the sunglasses. We haven't known that his eyes are mouths because as again, once again, he goes into an alley and this is this is the lesson Never go into an alley in the Sandman universe. Um, goes into an alley. There are these guys that are attacking him or like, you know, trying to hustle him in some way. Um, and uh, and he ends up biting off one of their fingers with his eyes. And we don't see what that looks like. And that is such a good decision because I, I think that a lot of times, and this is, you know, it's really true. Like the less we see, the more we imagine, the more we lean in. And then, and when you imagine something, it is in you. 
It is not on the page. It is not external. It is within you. You have imagined that in your head and made it like manifest in your brain. And now I have this dude with, with, when he's eating eyes, he's shoving eyes into his mouth eyes. It's all weird. Because they lack, he obviously is eye deficient. You know, mm-hmm. in the same yes. way that, you know, when you suddenly get a craving for salt, um, <laughs> I, I, I clearly, he's eye deficient. So he, he must be. Okay, so yes, eye deficient. And now uh, at the end, he, of course, you know, Jed just happens to wander into his path as Jed escapes his horribly nightmarish situation in which his head exploded and blew a hole in the door at the top of the stairs. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty awful. And of course, something that we're going to be dealing with the, uh, the, that playing out, um, as we move forward in the series. But now, now it is time for Lucian's library, which I think is one of my favorite parts of our discussion for all of you. This is uh, Lucian's library, the esoterica, the Easter eggs, uh, discussions that may or may not include spoilers. So if you are spoiler sensitive, just be warned. Um, all right. What you got for me this week, Elisa? Uh, well, first of all, there's a correction from Neil, <laughs> <laughs> who wrote me, lovely episode. Remember, Lida was post-crisis, the daughter of the Golden Age Fury and not of Wonder Woman. How does Neil remember all this stuff and keep it all straight? I can barely remember my children's names and I only have two. (laughs) You know what? It reminds me like that is the kind of note that Joshua Unruh sends me every week. Like he will message me. I think if Joshua and Neil ever actually got in the same room, I think the two of them would get along like a house on fire. They just (laughs) both of them have the ability to remember all of these details. I spent a good chunk of, of my time working on this, messaging back and forth with Josh. I have a Slack app for everybody at Chipperish. And so I just, I'll do all my messaging with everybody uh, in, in Slack. And I was like, okay, so who's the Golden Age Sandman? And who's the Silver Age Sandman? And what's the Bronze Age? Like, what is that? You know, asking him all of these questions. And he explains it to me in all this wonderful, lovely expert detail. And then I forget most of it anyway. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, so I, I like, like the fact that he said that if you had given me that quote and asked me who'd written it, I would say it was Joshua. Well, you know, there's 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 a, a bit of comic book geek about Neil. And that's one of the things mm-hmm. that went into the, all of this, you know, yeah. making Sam well, He knows work. the material. He mm-hmm. knows the material. He really does. Um mm-hmm. So there was that. And I realized, you know, I call her Lida. And that's always mm-hmm. how I, I've had it in my head. But I know that she's Hippolyta. I don't know if we're supposed to say Lita or Lita, you know, so I'm... Or Lita. I am not entirely sure. I think in the Amazon, uh, the Audible book that I've been listening to, I think it was Lita. But I will always follow your lead on these things because you have, you know, way so much more about it. Like, Oh, God. Well, no, I'm probably wrong. So if the Audible is <laughs> Lita, really? But then I it would be like Hippolyta. I don't know. I... I don't know, but you know what? It's our podcast. You can call her whatever you want. Thank you. And I, I hope she's not offended. I, I dislike it when people call me Alyssa. So, you know, maybe she's pissed off at me as well as Morpheus. Uh, people call me Lanny. I don't care. Lanny, Lanny, whatever. You know, Lucy, I don't care. Call me whatever. It's fine. <laughs> well, okay. So besides the correction, I thought I would just mm-hmm. point out two things. So there's a lot of sunglass wearing in the mm-hmm. Sandman. And you know that one of the things I, I love to talk about are, you know, the 80s 
uh, tropes in here. So I do think there was this sense in the 80s that there was people wore sunglasses. Neil was a sunglass wearer. Um, uh-huh. And I, I, I still do remember meeting him at a little pub and everyone else was wearing, you know, some sort of tweedy whatever mm-hmm. it was or floral house dresses and Neil was wearing a black <laughs> leather jacket and shades. And uh, and then there was, you know, probably people know this, but there was a song like, I wear my sunglasses mm-hmm. at night. And I was thinking how this taps into a lot of what was cool and rock starish about yeah. the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't see people wear sunglasses as much not even now that we know that we need them to kind of keep from losing our vision but I don't I don't see people where it's like Mm -hmm. headbands okay this is completely (laughs) off but you know there was a time when athletes and dancers wore like sweatbands to keep their sweaty hair off of their faces when they were exercising then it Mm -hmm. became a trend and people who weren't sweating were wearing them all the time (laughs) and now no one ever wears them ever and I'm thinking wait are there situations now in which a a sweatband or you know even leg warmers might be appropriate yeah but you can't do it unless you're going to a Halloween party you can't you can't pull it off people just make fun of you because the 80s took it made it a trend, and then suddenly nobody wants to do it anymore. However, all of those things, everything comes around again, like all of that stuff. So probably within a couple of years, it's going to be leg warmers and and sweatbands and and sunglasses at night as the cool Corinthian. As the cool <laughs> Corinthian. Wander around. Yeah. Well, so then the other thing I wanted to mention with um, Lida Lita's pregnancy. Lida Lita, yeah. Um, uh, lovely Lita, meet a mate. So she, uh, so Karen was pregnant when I started working at DC. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there was just, a, a, I guess, a, a, not a rash of pregnancies. There was a, a, mm-hmm. a, a rush of pregnancies. There were, there were a bunch of pregnancies. And I, I just remember that just as Karen was pregnant, there were all these pregnancies. And then in her comics, there seemed to be a lot of crazy baby stories so there was a really Mm -hmm. disturbing um hellblazer baby story and it it, Mm -hmm. it really did feel like it was um probably a challenge (laughs) to be (laughs) you know the head of a horror imprint where there were you know so many dark baby things going on yeah my aversion to children in peril um started when I had kids and so like before that I wasn't as sensitive about it but after that I just I couldn't you know and uh, and it does it kind of changes I don't know if it's a similar experience uh for men when they have children I don't think that uh that my kid's dad had any or seemed to have any a special sensitivity after the after the kids were born the way that I did um but yeah I I, I can't imagine like you know the the Jed story and my kids are grown they're in college I'm moving on you know it's good um and yet like when I see Jed it really like it it gets me you know it gets me in that spot in that mother spot when he when uh Dream says to to Lita Lita um that uh, I'm gonna come and take your kid I'm like oh we're gonna we're gonna throw down right about now i don't think so like i'm feeling her response to that you know um so yeah it's it's kind of interesting i don't know how that experience would have been um doing that kind of work then you know um when especially when the kids are so young 
you know, because it was probably at its worst for me when they were so young and so vulnerable, you know, um, that's, that's tough. That's a tough time. Um, so one of the things I want to talk a little bit about Garrett Sanford, because I did a little bit of research, Elisa, <laughs> unlike so. both Neil and Joshua, I know nothing about any of this. Um, but I did, I, I, I messaged Joshua a little bit. I was like, okay, so this is what I'm looking at. And is this, you know, makes sense. One of the things that um, I, I went back and I did some research um, and uh, we have Garrett Stan Sanford, who was uh, first appeared in Sandman number one in 1974, created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Um, and he was stuck in the dream world with Brute and Glob and a young boy named Jed, whose last name was Paulson. At that time, Jed has been reimagined as Walker for this uh, for this showing. Um, and the thing that is really funny, and I've noticed this a couple of times when researching this stuff, is that I will go back and I will read, you know, the history of this of this character, and all of that history will have been expressed in the Sandman stories that Neil's writing. And then I'm like, okay, so is this because Neil wrote that? Or is that like the actual history that it's the actual history? Like that was 1974. So Sanford was, if I if I had a buzzer on at the, like the, a bronze age, I guess, late silver, early bronze age, I guess for, uh, I still don't understand exactly what that means. I'm getting it a little bit. Um, I asked Joshua every week, he explained it to me again every week, and then I slowly start to absorb it. Um, but the thing is like the smoothness of how these stories and backstories, the momentum of them, how they move into Neil's story space, with such incredible, once again, I admire the work there. Like, you know, um, when I do research, I can't tell when it stops from the old DC universe, when it begins in Gaiman's Sandman, what came from earlier ages. It is so unbelievably smooth. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's funny. I, I can pick them out because there's just certain telltale signs that this was, especially when it's another Sandman. I'm like, this has to be, you know, one of the previous, you know, Sandmen. Um, but I just find it so fascinating the way he he brings that in so smoothly. And I think it comes from being in this sweet spot where Neil, mm -hmm. on the one hand, is a fan, you know, has that geeking mm -hmm. of, you know, wanting to touch on these older... Um, comics traditions, but he is not orthodox about them in the sense right. that he, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, they fell in love with, you know, Denny O'Neill's Batman, you know, circa 19, mm -hmm. you know, 70, whatever, and they don't want any changes or newer interpretations. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's such a sweet spot to love the past and yet to repurpose it and to to include it in your own work in in a very different comics universe. Right. But I mean, like, this amazes me. Like, he uses every part of the pig. I mean, this is the thing. Like, he finds this this synergy because he's not really changing. He's not really like he there's there's a Sandman in, in Neil Gaiman's Sandman universe. It encompasses, you know, Wesley Dodd. It encompasses Garrett Sanford. It encompasses... Hector Hall, right? Um, in their stories, the way that their stories were, you know, 
he brings it in. It just gives it all a broader context, but he's not retconning anything. He's not changing anything. This is the context, the unknown context that was in the background before, but this is what is really happening. That is a beautiful thing. Oh my God. You know, you articulated that so well. And I think actually every part of the pig is what we should have called this podcast. Every part of the pig. I know I'm going to be renaming this podcast every <laughs> single week because it's so fun. But um, but yeah, like it's as I was reading it, I was just so impressed with the fact that he didn't retcon anything. He didn't change anything. He didn't say these Sandmen didn't exist. He made them exist in their original context, in their original story, but within his story. And he brought not one, but two of them into this space with Brute and Glob, who were also part of the previous story. Like, I don't know. I just got to say, like, applause. I, you know, I admire the handiwork. I admire the cra- the craftsmanship. I'm a workophile. When I see somebody do good work, I'm like, damn, you know, it's so good. Um, and so fun to like, when he, when I see it, I go and I look it up and I am honestly like, I don't know. I don't know where they end and he begins. I don't know where that happened. So, um, it's just so incredibly fun. The other thing, of course, I love Gilbert, right? I love Gilbert as a concept. And as we're dealing with Gilbert um, in this issue, I was just sitting there thinking, if I were a place made human, what who would I emulate, right? And I got to say Dorothy Parker. Like, imagine her saying, what fresh hell is this in a comic book world in which there are many, many hells. And now I kind of want to write that comic book. <laughs> I I just love the question. And what... What place would Dorothy Parker be? Would she be a part of hell? Would she be? She'd be Central Park. She'd be in New York City around the Algonquin. Oh oh my God. Dorothy Parker is Central Park. I love that. I actually just wrote Dorothy Parker into something I'm writing right now. (gasps) Oh, I can't wait. I got to read that. Little little cameo. Um, Yay. I I love that. And I I, no wonder you and I are friends. Yeah, so I saw this question and I thought I am just all over this question. Um, so in the Bible, for me, mm-hmm. it's the witch of Endor. Endor is a place. It's the, you know, she comes from Endor. And mm-hmm. uh, and then I think about how clearly Endora from Bewitched is the witch of Endor, is this place Endor. And mm-hmm. Endora is kind of my model in all things. I am... <laughs> I am. I'm going to take on the whole the kaftans, the makeup, um, the oh, more the you red think, hair, the blue eyeshadow. You got it, girl. Everything she said to Samantha, I am totally mm-hmm. down with it. She was. Why was Samantha limiting herself? You know, mm-hmm. she was this incredibly powerful woman, and she was just losing herself in retro housewifery. So I yes, know. I would be Endor. <laughs> What are these retro shenanigans? You're a witch. Yes, I love that. Well, I need to revisit that show. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. I desperately want to see you cosplay Endora. I think that would be adorable. <laughs> Endorable. Endorable. Oh, my God. All right, Elisa, what's your favorite page? Oh, gosh. Okay, I think the Brute and Glob page, Just we talked about this already. I just mm-hmm. would totally read the further adventures of Brute and Glob. You know, it's, yeah. I, I would read them as a bromance. I would read them as, you know, break back dreaming. Uh, I just, You'd read them in a box. You'd read I, them with a fox. Yes, 
all the ways I would read the fanfic. Anyone who wants to send me some hot and heavy Brute and Glob fanfic, I'm here for it. Oh, my God. Brute and Glob uh, slash fiction. That is what we're going for now. Um, For me, my favorite page is the one where Dream is traveling and monologuing to himself. You know, as I travel, I admire the craftsmanship and the construction of this maze, admire the traps and pitfalls they have wrought. Um, I love the way that the panels on this page sort of overlap and hit at angles and they have all this movement. And then Dream is moving through something with a lot of green tentacles that does not seem to bother him. I presume he's moving through people's dreams. There's this purple background, which then shifts into a deep orange red as he gets there. I am dream. I am coming. I love it. I love it. I think it's so cool. That is, yeah. No, I I love the things that you love. And when you tell me the things you love, I find myself re-examining them. So that's just- I know, I do that too. Because whenever I see your answers in the script, I'm like, oh no, she's right. I should have had that one too, yeah. (laughs) All right, so now what is your favorite part? I I picked the over my dead body, you spooky bastard. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Light Alita is so vulnerable, but this is sort of her- Terminator moment, like Sarah, uh, uh, Sarah, ah, Connor. Sa- Connor, thank you. <laughs> you know, she's going, this is, this is, this is an ending and a beginning. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I love that. Um, for me, of course, it's when dream laughs. Like, I, I, oh, humanity, I love you. You never cease to amaze me. Um, the, the laughter at Hector, Hector with his proclamation, I am the protector of the innocence of children and all of this stuff. And and uh, Morpheus just cracks up. Um, there's something about that moment when he laughs that makes him a little more human. And it feels to me, and I, you know, I don't know, but it, it feels to me like a lot of this story, I mean, from the beginning, from the time he's captured through everything, is about him becoming gradually more human himself, him him acquiring this empathy. And he plays with that empathy like a toy from issue to issue to issue, where he'll be like, yes, I will let her dream into her death. And yes, I will take away your nightmares, John Constantine. And, you know, and yes, I will bring John D back to prison rather than sending him to suffer in a million years in hell or whatever. Um, and now it feels like he's he's played around with empathy he's he's mucked around in depression right which is an incredibly human experience um and now here we are with humor you know where he is finding something actually funny and that moment for me on the one hand it is funny because it is dream laughing which seems so incredibly incongruous you know um but it's also this this moment of discovered humanity um which i really really love from him and it was so fun to just read that page i loved it All right, if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. 
These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now, so thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, everything is going to be just fine. You know, I think it is, Lisa. I really think it is. Also, for you writers out there, I am writing a Dear Writer Substack newsletter. If you go to dearwriter.substack.com, you can find it there. It is free. It is advice for writers. Uh, there is also a paid tier, which will give you access to the podcast version and also a special extra letter on Saturdays where I talk about my writing and my experiences and all that jazz. So go to dearwriter.substack.com if you want to find out about stories and storytelling from me. Uh, but to find out how you can also support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish and other ways to show your support for Endless. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or cut open Barnaby and Clarice, scoop out their insides and hide inside their skins. He'll never think to look for you there. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you never cease to amaze me. We will be back next time with Men of Good Fortune, issue 13 of the Sandman series. Until then... Do we sit and watch our old boss pull the bozo's head off? Or should we find some place to lose ourselves and start the whole thing over again? Mm-hmm.